Let's turn to Psalm 19 for the last time. We'll read from verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. And they are righteous all together. We've set our thoughts around verse 7, at least the beginning of it, as we've looked at this section of the psalm where he first brings up the word of God. He calls it the law of the Lord. Jehovah's Torah is perfect, and it restores the soul. And he calls the word of the Lord different names here that each tell us something wonderful about that word and what it does. And we've seen that as he says there, it is the law of the Lord, it is the testimony of the Lord, it is the commandment of the Lord, that it comes from him, that it was God-breathed and that holy men in the past were moved along by the Holy Spirit as they received that word and as they recorded it for us to have throughout history and even today in our lives we have it because the Holy Spirit did that. And we saw that then the revelation was closed. And in the first sermon that we began to look at this word part of the psalm rather than the creation, I gave you a at least an introduction overview of how that word came from all the prophets. And I just listed it all for you. And then um, explained uh, that that has been corroborated. The Old Testament prophecies and everything have been corroborated and verified. And that although until a hundred years ago our oldest version of the Old Testament was from about 1000 AD, that remarkably in the providence of God, some shepherds near the Dead Sea came across a series of caves by accident, really, and found a huge treasure trove of pottery that contained hundreds of manuscripts in 1947. And that when we took these manuscripts and translated them, they were remarkably close to the version of the Old Testament that we have. And that silenced the mouth of many critics of the Bible because we have these things now. These scrolls were not from 1000 AD, but from well before the time Christ was born. And that in museums now in Israel and elsewhere, we have these scrolls. We can look at bits of paper that were from hundreds of years before Christ was born, and we can compare them to the words that we read in our daily lives and the word that is preached from this church. This is not a figment of the modern church's imagination. This is history, and it's undeniable. And we took some time last week 
to move through the verses and show some of the effect of that word upon us, that the reason it is complete and perfect and to be regarded that way as entirely sufficient for man is it because it's the only word that tells us the truth, the full truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. It is a word that could not have been just conceived by men because it so accurately and deeply diagnoses what we are, what we need in our souls. And remarkably, that word itself is the powerful agent that God uses to bring us to life. He uses the word and the spirit. The spirit comes into the heart and the soul to give us a new birth, but he does that always in partnership with the word. The spirit comes in with the word of God, and it's the word of God that changes us, and it brings light, it brings joy, and it warns us because we need that. So that's where we've been. We've established that the Bible says it comes from God, that it was breathed by God, and that it is closed and complete and sufficient, and that it saves men. But I want to move a little further, really, from that first sermon, as I explained the Old Testament to you, and just do the same thing with the New Testament uh, this morning, uh, just to give a bit of explanation as to where it came from and why we can trust it, and then just say a few more things about why God's Word, in light of all this, is to be accepted by us all as the truth. For that's the point of this section of the psalm. It, he tells us God has a word, but he says it is complete, it is absolutely sure, it is right, it is pure without error. And wonderfully in verse 9, it says that it will endure forever. That's the word we have. That's the word I'm preaching from right now. That's the word we've read. It is all these things. And as we've looked at this, I'm burdened for anyone who is skeptical about the reliability of this. Let's just remember that as we look at it. I'm telling you in God's name that this is absolutely true, and I want to demonstrate to you why we believe that. If you're a Christian, don't switch off because you live in a skeptical and atheistic world now, and you have to be able to give a reason for the things you believe. This equips us all to stand upon the word of God and and not to apologize for it and wonder about it and doubt it, but to stand on it with a gracious yet powerful assurance. So let's look at these things together. As that Old Testament was discovered in the Septuagint, that's the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that showed us that the Old Testament is reliable. But what about the New Testament? How did the New Testament come? For God stopped speaking. He stopped sending prophets. After the return from Babylon, when they were restored to the Promised Land, they began to disintegrate again from faithfulness, and only a small group remained faithful to the Lord. And Malachi was the last prophet. 400 years before Christ was born, 
there were no new prophecies or direct speakings from God. That in itself is a proof that this is the Word of God. Because many people wrote in that 400 years, and yet we haven't included it in the Bible. If this was just a collection of anything that a Hebrew prophet said about God, there are a lot more books that we would have included in this Bible. But we accept that God stopped speaking for 400 years, and he was silent to his church. He'd said all he wanted to say to the old covenant people, and Malachi was the last. So many people could invent different words to put in the Bible, but it shows the integrity of the way we treat the Bible, that we don't just allow any old thing to be put in here. It must carry the marks of divine authority and divine scripture. But God was silent because he was about to speak in a remarkably new way. And you know how he spoke. He sent his son. That's why there was a silence. No more just prophets to Israel but that all that they said would be fulfilled in his son. And yes, he accompanied his son with John the Baptist and others, but he came in his son, and in his son's words, and in his son's works, and in all Jesus did in his ministry, and in his life, death, and resurrection, God spoke. And it was all recorded, recorded by people who saw it, recorded by people who were right next to him as it happened, recorded by people who know what they are speaking about. And that is what we call the New Testament. And this is not some addition to the glorious scripture of the Jews. It is not just a a commentary that a few men decided to put together. But Jesus shows us in his ministry that this was expected, that the things that were going on around him and his own words would be part of Scripture. Now, that's why they thought he was a blasphemer. I mean, if you're a Jew and you have a completed Old Testament and then someone comes claiming to be the Son of God and says, my words are on par with the words you have received for the last few thousand years, it's no wonder that because of the blindness of their eyes, they accused him of blasphemy because if he hadn't been the son of God, that would have been blasphemy. And we read it together in Luke. Matthew records it too. But when he preached that final apocalyptic sermon on the Mount of Olives, he told them clearly that he's not someone with ideas. He's not someone that can add a few sermons onto the teaching that's already in the Bible. He says with absolute self-consciousness, and awareness that what he is saying there and then is going to be included in Scripture. Remember, he said it. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That only God can speak with such clarity and self-assurance and a gracious and pure confidence like that. He was aware of it too. I mean, in that week, a few days after that, Mary 
who understood what was going to happen to him in a way that no one else did. She broke a very expensive alabaster box of Indian ointment and she poured it all over him. And the disciples criticized her and Jesus said, it's not right that you are criticizing her for she understands what she's doing. And what she has done will be remembered for generations to come until the end of the world as a memorial to her. So Jesus was aware even in that house. When Mary did that, Jesus knew that one of the disciples would record it and that that event would be placed in Scripture as much as the Exodus was and that it would be remembered through every generation as a memorial to Mary. Mary didn't know that, but Jesus did. So you see the awareness of the Lord in his own ministry that what is happening in this new covenant explosion and the the completion of all his work, he knows it's all going to be recorded and that it's going to be inserted in Scripture to complete Scripture. He's aware of it. And he commissions apostles to then write and to act themselves and to go out with the gospel as he told them to do and establish churches and that their acts, their work, would be recorded too. And Luke recorded it. It's called the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And it was recorded accurately all that they did and said. And then these apostles also wrote letters to each other and to churches. And they were aware that there was something unusual and something special about what they were saying and doing. And they knew it would be recorded Take someone like Peter. If you turn for a moment to Second Peter before we get back to our Psalm, Second Peter, chapter three. It gives us a key, one of the most important keys to understanding God's word. Second Peter three. In verse fifteen, Peter says this towards the end of his life. Consider that the long-suffering of the Lord is our salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you already, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people will twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. Therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness. Now, you think about what Peter's saying there. Peter says to them um, that they have received letters from Paul, that they already know these things, and he says that these things are hard to understand. So Peter has received a copy of these letters, and he acknowledges that some of Paul's letters are hard to understand. And because they're hard to understand... He says people end up twisting them to mean something else as they do the rest of the scriptures. Now, Peter doesn't say people twist the words of Paul and they also twist the words of scripture. He says people twist the words of Paul as they do to the rest of the scriptures. That shows us that Peter already has accepted that Paul's epistles 
our scripture. He has received letters from Paul and he considers them as equal authority to Genesis and Deuteronomy. They are equal. That Paul, Peter says, has as much authority as Moses. And that the New Testament that he was writing and that Paul was writing, that they had in their possession, they were aware this is not human authorship. This is scripture we have. God is moving us. And these things are hard to understand. But these new things are being clarified for us through these letters. And we are already considering these letters to be part of Scripture. So Jesus was aware, his words, he was recording like a typewriter as it was clicking. It was already part of Scripture as he spoke it. It was being recorded by God as part of Scripture. And Paul's letters were being recorded as part of Scripture. And then John closes the Bible when he receives that great revelation from Christ on that island. And at the end, the very end of the Bible, John says this, Blessed is he who does all the things recorded in this book. And cursed is anyone who changes any word of the book I've just written. How can John say that? Can you say that? If you write something, can you say cursed is any man who dares to change what has been written? But John says it because he's aware that he has just received scripture. And it will be in scripture and it is not to be changed at all. And the Bible just finishes with that note. It just rings with that note right at the end. It's complete. Let no one change it. So we have Jesus' words and his actions. We have Paul and Peter and the others, Luke. They recorded scripture and John completed scripture. And they were aware as they did it They were being moved by the Holy Spirit. And as Peter said, as I showed you last week and the week before, Peter says, no prophecy comes of private interpretation, but men were moved by the Holy Spirit. Peter isn't only saying that Moses was moved. Peter can say that because he's experiencing it. Peter says men were moved by the Holy Spirit because he knows that he and Paul and James and Luke are being moved by the Holy Spirit. This is what we have. When David says, the law of the Lord is complete and perfect and true, David didn't live in a time when it was fully completed because the king, David's savior, would come and speak and anoint apostles to speak. So when God tells us here through the mind of David, my law will be completed and it will be right and true and perfect, then we take from Psalm 19 that it must also be a reference to the whole of Scripture. So that's the way we take it as Christians when we sing Psalm 19. Let's sing it this way. Genesis to Revelation is perfect. Genesis to Revelation is sure and right, and it is true, and it is God's truth to us. Now, as we have established uh, that, or at least explained it, 
what can I tell you? Maybe you're sitting there doubting this. You say, I still don't believe that this is God's word. Let me give you three things that I think demonstrate clearly that this is God's word. This revelation, and especially the New Testament, is complete and pure and true because it was faithfully transmitted. That's my primary reason for being able to sleep at night with a Bible next to my bed and know that it is the Word of God. We have here something that was written and we know it was transmitted faithfully to us. Now, I know this is difficult, but um, we have have to do this. It it matters. And it's difficult to concentrate. Um, Maybe you can listen back to the sermon. Just track with this. I'm going to give you some dates and I'm going to give you some information. Just track with it for a moment. Until a few hundred years ago, the church's Bible had been transmitted and passed on for 2,000 years, and the oldest one we had was a complete New Testament, was in Latin, and it was called the Vulgate. Now, that word Vulgate is, is, is not hard to understand. It comes from the word vulgar which means the common crass language. And Latin was the common language as English is today. And the, the New Testament had been put into Latin and the church received it and it just kept passing it on right through when the Roman Catholic Church became a beast and shrouded Europe in darkness. That Bible remained intact and the, the reformers took that Bible and we still have it. And the oldest one we had was from 800 AD. Now you see the problem there. Because when man became even more skeptical in the modern era, in the last couple of hundred years, he looked at that Bible and he said, it's 800 years after the things happened. So I will not believe it. It was obviously changed. I'm sure you've heard people say that. And it's a real doubt in people's minds. Jesus lived and Paul lived. Some people had said in that time, there probably was no Jesus. That's how bold man, he makes wild assertions about things that are clearly historical. None of these, there probably was no Paul. He's probably a myth. And all we have is this from the 8th century. How do we know that these words haven't been mangled by people and that were being manipulated? Well, the problem with that is that we've discovered a lot more things. And in God's providence, he's done that. To arm the church for the atheistic era so that people will be in no doubt we discovered a complete Bible in Greek. Where, no less, at the foot of Mount Sinai. That's where it was discovered in the 1800s. A complete Bible. It had been hidden in a monastery, and it was discovered, and they dated it, and it was from 300 A.D., so we, went, we jumped right back near the time. You can pick that up. You can go to the British Museum. I think it's there. And you can, you can look at it. You can look at a Bible that was written in 300 AD. And the problem with that, others still said, well, it's still too late. It, it, Jesus died in, in the 30s. Paul and these men died a little bit later, but we're still talking 200 years here. It's still too far. It was probably still changed. But God just keeps digging up all these discoveries, confounding the modern man, and giving gifts to us. 
that we can trust this word. We actually have discovered in various places, if we put them all together, the entire New Testament from very close to when the apostles lived. Let me give you a couple of examples. They found a complete John's Gospel in the 1950s in Egypt, in Greek. A copy of a copy, probably, from the very Gospel of John. And it's been dated to 200 AD or even before that, maybe 150. That's very close to when John lived. And you can go and see it. You can see John's gospel in the original language from way back then. And you look at it and it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. You can read your Bible from way back then. And there aren't substantial differences Obviously, when people are copying some things, little mistakes are made. There's debates about various things. But it's basically John's gospel. And there are no substantial doctrinal differences at all. So you can imagine what happened because a hundred years ago even, people were still criticizing the Bible and being very bold and saying, we don't have these things. Now we have them. We have these things and they can't say that it's not been transmitted faithfully. It has. Even more than that, then they discovered a fragment of John's gospel. They discovered that in the 1920s. A fragment of John chapter 18 that they dated to around 100 AD. That is very close to when John lived. They found a piece of papyrus paper with John 18 on it. And you can look at it, the paper and the ink, and you know that it's probably just a copy of John's Gospel. And the, the text that's on it is the same as the one that I have in front of me right now in John's Gospel. It's the same. What more do we need that a chapter of John's Gospel from 100 A.D., is basically the same as the one I have in 2018. That's impossible. No other book does that. There's no comparison in any of the books we have. Books change all the time. And God just places that in front of the skeptics and says it has not changed. It's a miracle that it's not changed. And it hasn't changed. The greatest discovery of all was some archaeologists uncovered an ancient Egyptian city and they discovered the rubbish dump of that city, which was huge. And it was filled with artifacts and paper and bits of book, books and people's receipts and marriage contracts. It was filled with all of these papers. And uh, they discovered that place, Oxyrhynchus, at the turn of the 1900s, it was discovered. And they began to find bits of the Bible in it. Bits of paper that scribes had written or Bibles people had that then became damaged and then bits of the paper were just thrown away or they were left as rubbish on the street and the people who collected the rubbish put it all in the rubbish dump. They began to 
find these fragments of 1 Corinthians and, and John and Matthew and Mark and Philemon and the book of Revelation. They just kept finding them and they set up a dig to find out what exactly was in here. And you know that in a five-year period at the beginning of the 1900s when these men dug up these fragments, they found 500,000 fragments of paper and they began to sift through them looking for parts of the Bible and they found one. They found Mark chapter 1 in the rubbish dump and they dated it to 180 AD and they took the fragment and compared it to the version of Mark we have today and it was the same. It was the same. Remarkable. And they've done that for about 17 of the New Testament books they've already found. Now, they, they back then found 500,000 bits of paper. Since then, they found a lot more. There are so many bits of paper that have been found there now, and they're still there digging. There are so many that they don't have time to translate them, and only 2% of them have been translated. They're just in a heap in museums all over the place, and we don't have people. We don't have enough people who can read the language to translate them. That's amazing. So I'm telling you that because God just gives these... It's almost like there's a smile on his face. He gives these things, and they're the same as the original Bible that we have. And he set it up for the 21st century because they will sift through the rest of those papers in the next hundred years. And who knows what they'll find. So if you put all that together, you're going to need to listen back to that because that is hard to follow. But this is God's providence. And we have to honor God because he has done this. He led these people to find these things. And they are for us. Just take it this way. We don't even need our Bibles to know what God's word is. If all the Bibles were destroyed and there were no Bibles left, the entire Bible would still exist in all of these museums. We don't have parts of the Bible. We have the entire Bible. It's there and it's complete. And for our Bible, our New Testament especially, we have 20,000 fragments and manuscripts. For Plato and Aristotle and Homer's Iliad and other ancient documents like that that are accepted today, we usually have eight to ten fragments or copies of them, hundreds of years after they were written. That's what we have of Plato and these men. Just ten fragments, fifteen fragments, the New Testament has 20,000. And the reason for that is clear. It's because what Jesus said is true. This gospel will be preached in all the world. And these were all found in Egypt, a nation that wanted nothing to do with the Jews and nothing to do with Christ. But within a couple of hundred years of Christ's ascension and the preaching of the apostles, who were all killed, by the way, the entire Roman Empire and Egypt were filled and inundated with New Testament. People accepted it, and they wrote it, and they copied it, and they copied it and gave it to friends, and it spread everywhere. Th that whole area 
is literally littered with the New Testament. So when someone comes to you, Christian, and says, oh, the Bible, that's myths and legends and we don't know where it came from, that is simply ridiculous. This New Testament is the most attested document in history. It is the most copied document in history. And it is the document that is spread out in the furthest possible net in history. There is nothing that compares to what we have in this New Testament. It is not up for argument. This is what Paul wrote. This is what Jesus said. This is what John wrote. And they wrote what they saw. In that fragment of John 18 um, that we found in God's providence remarkably this is what is on the fragment it is the conversation between Jesus and Pilate and they found it and picked it up and looked at it And when you look at it, you enter a room and you enter into the conversation between Pilate and Jesus. Not written a couple of hundred years ago, written way, way back in 150 AD. And they looked at it and they translated it. And we have this fragment, it's in a museum, you can go and see it. And this is what it says. You are right to say that I am a king. For this reason I was born. And I have come into the world so that I would testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth will hear my voice. Then Pilate said to him, what is the truth? And having said this, he again went out to the Jews and said to them, I cannot find one fault in him. When I read the scripture here to you, I'm not reading you a myth. I'm reading you history. And God the Father testifies to his son, and that fragment was found. And we have a bit of paper from way back then. And Jesus remarkably says in that bit of paper, whoever is of the truth will hear my voice. And a testimony to the fact that Pilate said, I can't find a fault with this man. Why is all that the case? Because Jesus says, my words will never pass away. How could he know that? If he was a crook or a liar or a fanatic, how could he know that? How could he say, my words will never pass away and know that his conversation with Pilate would still be spoken about in Meadville, Pennsylvania, 2,000 years later. How could Jesus know that? Who else can say what Jesus says? When he says, my words will not pass away, he meant it, and I've just proven it to you. They haven't passed away. And yet Pilate, almost in a sermon from God, Pilate said to him, what is the truth? Are you saying that? As a skeptical person, What is the Bible? What is the truth, really? Are you saying what Pilate said? Pilate paid for what he said. 
Pilate's life after that was very difficult, and Pilate died without hope when he had stood in the presence of the Son of God. And when he looked truth in the face, he said, what is truth? Don't do what Pilate did. Don't look truth in the face this morning and say, what is truth? You can see what it is that Jesus testifies to his own word and the reliability of the New Testament. It stands firm and immovable throughout all the ages of history and even this morning. We can speak about things that were said so long ago and we know that they are accurate. It was transmitted faithfully. We also know that this Bible is perfect and true, as David says here, because it's historically accurate. David says in verse 9 that the fear of the Lord or the word of the Lord is pure and it endures forever. It is not of our history. It's from eternity and it lasts forever. It's above our history. And God has unfolded his plan and done all of these things and he carries out history and he turns its wheels and moves it forward. And he, whatever he says about history, it can be verified as the truth because you see it happen. You know that someone's speaking the truth when they tell you what's going to happen and it happens. So when David says here, this is complete, this is true, this endures forever, you would expect that everything in this book that I have before me really happened. And history testifies to it. Let me give you a couple of examples uh, that people were very skeptical about from the Bible. Take, for example, the Hittite people from the Old Testament that Moses saw, that Abraham saw. David actually mentions the Hittites. You'll remember that the man who was Bathsheba's husband was a Hittite, Uriah the Hittite, the man that David betrayed. And people scoffed at this for hundreds of years because there was no evidence that there were Hittites. Okay, the Bible says there are Egyptians, we see Egyptians. It says that there are Romans, we see Romans. But the Bible is wrong and fanatical. It made up this people, the Hittites, and we find no evidence for this people ever uh, living on the earth. We've never found anything about them. And in that same era I've been telling you about of skepticism, they just mocked the Bible and said these people didn't exist. You know what I'm going to say next. They found the Hittites over a hundred years ago. They found a huge city that had been built by the Hittites, a big city with carvings in it and artifacts. And when the, when the archaeologists said, this is the Hittite people, we, we can read it in the inscription, do you know what the scientific community said? It can't be the Hittites because we already know they didn't exist. And they argued for 20 years about this until they finally had to accept, okay, there were Hittites, people that knew Abraham, people from 1500, 2000 BC. And we found their city in Turkey and uncovered it all and found hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of proofs that this people existed. Up until that point, only the Old Testament had said that the Hittites existed. The house of David. They said for a long time, 
David didn't exist. No, no evidence for him. There was no House of David until 1993 when they discovered a stone that said upon it, the House of David. A record of a battle between Judah and another nation that said that the battle was fought against the House of David. Isaiah wasn't real. Isaiah was made up by the Jews. Isaiah was actually four or five different authors that put together a prophecy. There was no Isaiah that served King Hezekiah until 2009, when at the wall of Jerusalem, they found a seal that had Isaiah's name on it, which said, Isaiah the prophet. And they found it ten feet from another seal that mentioned King Hezekiah next to the ruins of the royal bakery in Jerusalem. This is our God. You can go to Jerusalem and look at the bakery that was overseen by King Hezekiah's royal household, and they find a seal next to it that mentions Isaiah the prophet. So he's real, and it goes on and on and on. They said the same about Pilate himself. I don't know if you know that. They said he never existed. They said that there was no record in Roman history of someone called Pilate. So the whole thing between Christ and Pilate had been made up by the apostles. And that there was no one called Pilate until 1960. When they found a stone at the harbor in Caesarea next to the Mediterranean Sea that was signed by Pontius Pilate and dedicated to Caesar as he built a temple for the worship of Caesar. This is the man who very soon would meet the Lord Jesus Christ. Remarkably, just last week, they confirmed that they'd found a ring that had Pilate's name on it. It was discovered years ago, but it hadn't been translated. And it was just on the news last week that they have a ring that has a glass of wine on it and it has Pontius Pilate's name that he would use to stamp in seals so that his authority was in there. Do I, do I need to, to keep giving you more examples? What more do I need to say? I can give you lots of examples about Paul and Luke and how everything that they said has been verified. The places they went, the people they knew, all the names that Paul mentions at the end of his letters, they were all said to not exist, and one by one, as they keep digging up around Jerusalem and around Israel, they keep finding these people. The book you have in front of you is history. In fact, it's the only book of history. Other books will have errors in them, they're men's opinions, they reinterpret events, and they always have an agenda. What you have is the only historical book in the world. This book actually tells you what has happened. This book tells you about God. This book tells you real events that happened in the life of the Lord and in his apostles, and the time for being skeptical and saying it didn't happen is gone. That time has passed. That age of myth has passed. 
And the church must be bold and confident about this. It all can be historically verified. And what does God say in this psalm about it? This word will endure forever. And he was right. After hundreds of years of it sitting under attack, God in his providence just keeps throwing things up from the dirt that clearly show a real world and real people and real events. And they did happen. And it's only going to keep going. They're only going to make more and more of these discoveries and it will all be seen for what it is. So when you come to church, you're not here to listen to motivational talks about some ideas that we have in our head. You come here to hear about God and your heart wants to tell you, I don't really need to take this that seriously. I can remain in my skepticism, but you can't. Jesus pushes it upon you with every discovery that's made and every word he speaks from here, he keeps pushing it on you. And lastly, let me say something about it enduring forever. It's transmitted faithfully, it's historically accurate, and it will endure forever. And you live in that time, my friend, and these discoveries will keep happening. This word has survived the hatred of man, the attacks of man, the Roman Empire trying to crush Christianity and the church. They killed Paul. They killed Peter. They killed all these men. Their little letters that they sent to churches shouldn't have survived. And they tried to kill every Christian. And Islam tried to destroy Christianity and burn its churches and burn its scriptures. But God made sure that this word stands, for it's it's not a group of pieces of paper only. God guards this and he makes sure that it stands, that its words are clear, and that it can always be preached to man. And God made sure it happened. Jesus said that this gospel, he said, before the end of the world, would be preached to the whole world and to all nations. This kingdom will be preached in all places on this earth, in all churches on this earth, in cities, in fields, in houses, in forests, in huts, wherever people end up, however developed people are, this word will be found, and that's happened. You live in a world where God's word has come true, that all this has happened. You live in a world where there are Bibles everywhere. You live in a world, skeptic, where Christians are everywhere and in every nation. You cannot just cast that aside. How could that have happened if it was not for the power of God? That a man from Nazareth who was killed in his 30s, yet everything he said is still being talked about and preached in every village and town and nation in this earth. People in China, in their bereavement, aren't going to read Plato to get comfort from it. They're going to read Jesus Christ to get comfort from it. Societies aren't changed by Plato. Societies aren't changed by Darwin. Societies are changed 
by this person. How do you explain that? That it survived and that it keeps biting away at the world like salt and preserving it and shedding its light. How do you explain it? It's because it's God's word and any tool and any axe and any piece of metal that we take to try and break down upon it, our tools will break and this word will stand. And you may be afraid, Christian, of the day we live in and the attacks and the very impressive and bold arguments that are made against us and the hot air and the viciousness with which people treat Christianity, the LGBT community and all these things. They hate us and they, they breathe fire to us and it will only get hotter and it might hurt. But one thing I do know, they can't do anything with this. They can't do anything with this. And many things may happen in the 21st century. I have no idea what might happen. But I know one thing. That at the end of the 21st century, this word will still stand. And atheism will burn itself up. And people will destroy themselves in these relationships and in these cultures. But this word will stand And our children's children will have this word. The grass withers, the flower fails. It falls away, but the word of God endures forever. The fear of God is pure and it lasts forever. And he will be feared. And his word will stand even to the end of the 21st century. My dear friend... You're living in this century, and you wouldn't be alive at the end of it, probably. Your life is short, and this word will outlive you, and you'll have your day in the sun, and vanity of vanities, and you'll enjoy your food, and your relationships, and your achievements, and your family, and you'll you'll have things, but you will lose it all. You have a beginning and an end. And this word stands above you in this century and it will be there. When are you going to look up at it and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? When are you going to do it? This word will stand. It will not pass away. And this word says something to you. What it's said to every man who's ever lived. It's saying it to you. You cannot hide from this word. It is God's word and you have heard it. You can't hide from this word. You cannot hide from God. He lasts forever and you will be brought before him. And you will stand before this word. They said to Jesus, will you judge the world? He says, I wouldn't judge the world. The words I have spoken will judge them. On that day, my word will judge them. And on that day, John's gospel will be before you. And Paul's letters will be before you. And Psalm 19 will be before you. It will be there. It just remains written on the walls all around you. And you cannot pretend it's not written there. 
the Son of Man will come. As sure as he says his words would last and all these things were discovered, and as sure as he said he would die and be raised from the dead, and he did, when he says to us, I'm coming back, let us not breathe in the lies of the devil and become intoxicated with foolishness. He says he's coming back, and he is coming back. He is coming back, and his word will be there. Respond to his word now. You'll stand there, and what words will you have before him? If you try and speak some words to him, I didn't know, I didn't have time, I didn't realize that I was going to destroy myself. You had my words. Listen to these words now. Because they are true and complete. And they will endure forever and to all eternity in the new heavens and new earth. His words will endure What words will you say to him? You know the words he will say to us if we don't embrace his word now. Away from me. You never knew me and I didn't know you. I've given you evidence, my friend, but the Spirit of God must convince you of the authority of this. I've given you evidence. Don't say you don't have evidence. This is the book, and it's the only book you need. And today, please, today, embrace all of these words. Not my words, not anyone else's words, but his words. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, help us to hear. Help us all to bow under your word. Praise you for the one who spoke them. How we long not only to hear his voice through scripture, but soon to hear his voice face to face. And that day will come when the sound of his voice will be like a trumpet and the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the Lamb of God will speak in power to this world and as we look over the next few weeks of your word and the other things that it says and how all that it says comes to pass and how all Jesus said about his death and resurrection also came to pass we pray that this would be a season in our lives where we understand in a fresh way the wonder in life that comes from hearing and heeding this word. Help us to hear this word. Help us to have these words on our lips. Help us to speak these words of grace and holiness and love even to each other. Give us all the good words of God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.